0: you have a Bible this morning and you'll read with us, we're going to take an initial reading from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 7. We may look around at different places this morning. Um, The title of our message this morning is Monumental Moments. Monumental Moments. And so we're going to look at a couple places in the scriptures where there are some monumental moments which occur... And would like to say this to begin our message today, um, there's a lot of moments in our lives that um, will no doubt be remembered by us forever, um, or likely so. Some of those are inconsequential memories that we have from childhood, of things that don't really amount to anything, but for some reason they've been lodged in our memories and um, are dear to us, perhaps even unpleasant to us. Um, There are other days that are landmark days. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget my wedding day, Uh, the first time I held my children. There are a lot of days um, people passed away, as has been mentioned this morning, where you were at, what you were doing. Um, certainly for many of us, we can think of nine eleven as a day that we remember as a landmark day, and um, songs have been written about that, memorials have been set up about those things. And certainly those would classify in some loose way as a monumental moment that helped to shape us as people, that also um, just have an impact on us, we reminisce about, we find some nostalgia in Though those things I don't want to belittle, I don't want to focus upon those monuments today. Um, But my intent this morning is to bring up what I would consider or classify as spiritual monuments. Moments in your life where you and God, or God in you, did something. And I don't know that I'll be able to express, and I ask you to pray for me this morning as I feel a specific need for prayer today. Um, At times, I have worried that in an attempt to impart truth, that people sensationalize things, even religious truth, spiritual truth, that... We so badly want someone to experience God's goodness and the blessings that we have that we find the most radical adjectives we can find. And I don't want to do that this morning. But I want to be clear and simple today as best as I can. Um, There are moments in our lives that we may never have in a photo album, that we may never um, reminisce about with other people, that even those closest to us do not understand the significance of. But there are moments in our lives, and not every Christian has those. And that may surprise you to hear me say that. The more that you walk with the Lord, the more you have those experiences. And the more casually you walk with Him, the less you have those experiences. Um, I've never been in the military. I'm grateful for those of you who have been and have served in that way. Um, What has always intrigued me is The idea of being in battle with someone and your life is in their hands and their life is in your hands and you endure, I can't even think of what the experience would be like and the bond that is created through those dear moments, sometimes lasting for a day or for just merely a couple minutes to an hour or sometimes months, years at a time. But it does something to your bond. Those of you who have suffered with someone, maybe you and your spouse have undergone a loss, and you can't put it into words. But it's something that you both share, and in the midst of that, it does something to your relationship. It brings a oneness. you, Much the same is our experiences with the Lord at times. That when we undergo with the Lord certain things, it does something to our walk with the Lord. It changes you. It reveals something about God that you did not know before. It deepens something in you. And that deepening is very necessary and good. And this morning, in part, what I would like to do is praise God for those moments that we have experienced where God has allowed us to set up a monument. And that monument has done something to us and in us and continues to do something for us. And there are three occasions in the scriptures where there are many occasions in the scriptures, but there's three that i like to bring to your attention this morning. And this first one has to do with the children of Israel. And they have, prior to this, sinned against the Lord. And because they had sinned against the Lord, God had brought judgment in allowing their enemy, the Philistines, to conquer them. Then God, because he also judged the Philistines and they're wrong, allowed good things again to return and happen to Israel. And in the midst of this, they come together and they begin to ask the Lord and and pray to the Lord, a prayer of repentance, asking God's forgiveness for the neglect which they had had towards him. And we're going to begin our reading in verse five of this scripture reading And it says this in verse 5, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that, we, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the, upon the Philistines and disconfitted them, and they were spent before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah, out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came into Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Where hitherto just means thus far has the Lord helped us. So we see this wonderful picture that begins, and I think all of us can, that have been born again, and I want to make a, a really clear emphatic point today to say that in Christianity throughout the world, there are many things that people put forward as what salvation is. And oftentimes people will say, well, it's a process. And I was saved. I can't pinpoint a place or a time, but it was just a process. Or other people will say, you know what? I grew up in church and I've just always been a Christian. And I want to unequivocally denounce those two things today. That is not true. You were not born a Christian. You were not born saved by God's grace Actually, you were as born as far apart from that as you possibly could be. You were born wicked, fallen into sin. and your nature, up to the point that God saves a person, it's not just a change of mind which occurs. People don't gradually see a process of, you know what, I want to turn over another leaf, and so I'm going to begin to do good deeds, and then those good deeds become more natural to us, and over time we feel better about it, and then we've carved out a lifestyle, and that lifestyle we now have labeled Christianity, and so now I'm a Christian because I behave like Christians. Listen, you can train a dog to do a lot of things that are unnatural to dog and might mimic the behavior of humans or other animals, but at its core, it is still a dog. No, what is required is not just a change of behavior or attitude or mindset, but God must supernaturally transform a person's nature to where they are as different from being a dog as any creature in the world. There is a time and a place for deliverance. That's what these people experienced here. Is that at one point they were in fear. They were in bondage to this fear that the Philistines were going to attack and conquer them. And Israel had spent significant time in bondage over the years. And yet there was a day. And there was a moment where the Egyptian king surrendered control and authority over the children of Israel. And then that moment, they were, by God's grace, free. We, in our own country, we celebrate every July 4th the signing of the Declaration of Independence because we proclaim that the moment that those signatures were signed on that document, though we had to fight a war to prove it, we go back and we say, it was that day that we were free. Before that day, we were subject to a king, but no longer. And so we have erected this monument. We have erected this document and these ideas, and we have said, it is on that day. In July 4th, 1776, we were set free. No longer enslaved. I want to say this morning, the first thing for a Christian, the first monument that we have is the time and the place where God saved us. Now listen, that is not, as I've already mentioned, that's a notable day. Like there's something, I've known a lot of people who have gotten saved, but they did not realize exactly what happened that day. But what they did know is that something profound happened on that day. They didn't know what to call it. They didn't know what the Bible taught it to be. They had no framework of understanding to know how to label what took place. But they knew that there was a point in time where they were calling out to God in fear. Just like these people were. They were in Mizpah gathering together. They asked Samuel the prophet. They said, please cry out to God for us. And so that's what Samuel does. He cries out to God. He's begging God for intervention in this situation for forgiveness of sin. And then God... God answers. There's a time and a place where God conquered the enemy. And it says in verse 10 that they heard a great thunder that God brought forward. And that day, that moment, they heard, they experienced, they were conscious of God's deliverance. Now notice who the one that was that delivered. It was God. So listen, when you go to battle... You have two people involved, right? you got two enemies. One fighting for one thing, one fighting for another. When a lost person is lost and in their sins, you've got yourself and you have sin having dominion over you. A taskmaster. You are sin's prisoner. Those two beings or ideas or entities are there. And then when salvation occurs, it is not just you escape and conquer the one. It's not like that. Whenever Israel was enslaved, it wasn't just they rose up and had a powerful leader who did a bunch of miracles and then they, they left. That's not what happened. There was a third being that got involved. God. Now listen, if, you, if you've experienced this Here's what often precedes these monumental moments. It is not a personal feeling of empowerment. It's not this, you know what, I am now determined and our culture makes a big deal to try to give a catalyst to people to do good things and to get out of the slums that they might be in and say, you know what, you just got to grit your teeth, you got to work hard, you got to put your eye on the prize, you got to push and push and push. And they say, you know what, once I did that, it all changed and I go back to that day. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. It's much the opposite of that. Here's monumental moments that I'm talking about. You have given up. Your resolve has been broken. You have nowhere else to go and nothing to do. And you have resigned yourself to abject failure and surrender. You say, they won, the Philistines win. Or in our case, sin wins. Addiction wins. Failure wins. Hopelessness wins. I have nothing and I've tried everything. And I have been calculated and I've sought spiritual advice. And I've done all the spiritual disciplines that I know to do. And yet still I remain in bondage. Nothing I can do. And that moment you resign yourself over, then God comes. And for me, it's always so unexpected. Like, I don't try to play a mind trick on God. God, I've given up now, and so now you can show up. Wink, wink. No, it's when you really come to the end. And then suddenly, completely unexpectedly, God shows up. And he does what he does. And so often it is beyond anything that you would have the ability to fabricate in your own mind. Like the way that he intervenes and speaks into the situation is nothing that you had calculated in the picture beforehand. God's just there. And he does this thing, and often it can be just that quick. And everybody else may have got all their, they never knew where your heart was at. They never knew where your mind was at. They never knew how deep the mourning was, the sadness was, the pain was, the disillusionment was. They don't know. They may share a part in that, but they don't know experientially just how deep it was. And so here's what I want to encourage you this morning. Set up a monument there. You have to. Like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not recommending it. I'm saying it's a necessity. Like, it's a big necessity. Because what you ought to know about the Christian life is that this life, not just the Christian life, all life is full of misery and pain. And depression and obstacles, some of which are common and some are which are very unique. And all of those things bombard people. And God is not one who is always just sitting like, like I do with Callan, just holding your hand every step of the way, giving all of these reassurances. No, God requires that as we mature in faith, we walk by faith trusting listen I'm not holding his hand anymore I'm not hearing his voice from moment to moment but I know he's there and then you walk a little farther and the valley gets deep and the pressures get high and it's been a while since you've known he was there it's been a while since you've touched the surety of his hand And your body begins to fail you and break unexpectedly to you. And so what do you do? What most people do is they sink into despair. They distract themselves with the euphoria of false illusions. To drown the doubt and the pain and the fear of what's ahead. Here's what they do. Build a monument. He even named the monument Ebenezer. The Lord has helped us thus far. Thus far, the Lord was right there. So what is that, how does that come into play? I want to turn to another text where this is found, if I can find it. Turn to the book of Joshua. Book of Joshua, chapter 4. Now you'll remember, this is the generation after Moses. A very faithless generation. One that God was highly displeased with. One which God used over and over as an example of faithlessness. And now this is their children. Now you would expect, and this is one of, to me, the anomalies of the whole Old Testament in this generation, is that they're raised by a faithless generation, and they are the most faithful generation of any that I can find in the whole Old Testament. And so what they don't know is ahead of them is that they're going to have to conquer. Well, they, they do know this to an extent, but they don't know how it's going to be done. They're going to have to conquer this impenetrable fortress named Jericho. That they're going to suffer loss in Ai. Remember the sin of Achan? How Achan goes out and he hides all these uh, these goods, these uh, these things that God told him not to take, and then. The Israelites experienced the death that they were not expecting of many of their soldiers. And now Joshua and the people are crying out in despair. And they suffer all this loss. And then chapter 12 of the book of Joshua tells us this. 31 kings throughout this Canaanite conquest, they have to fight against. 31 different kings they have to go fight against. And so at this point, that's all lying ahead of them. And so God knows what's ahead of them and knows that whatever is ahead of them will require faith and obedience despite having to fight. And so God is gracious and he prepares them for the battle ahead by giving them a clear indication of his hand in this moment. Chapter 3 verse 10. I want to read this real quick. Says this: By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that He will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Gergeshite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. And that's what he's saying here. I'm about to do something to you, in you, by me alone. That is absolutely miraculous. And one of the purposes is this, to grant you a blessed assurance that when you get in the thick of the battle, you can look back and you can know that I will be with you without fail. So do you understand that sometimes God allows things to occur in our life and then triumphs in those things in preparation for future things that will be heavier and harder to handle that we might look back at the altar that we have erected at the monument we have erected and in the moment of despair and struggle we can say God I know you have promised me that you'll be with me. You have been with me before. You have delivered me. You have done miraculous things and in this moment where my emotions and as the psalmist says my heart fails me I will cling to you why because I know you in this unique way you've never failed me I love it when God does that I love it when God gives us these things so one of the purposes of having a monument is for when your faith is weak so, listen, Satan looks to attack you when your faith is weak. Do you ever feel doubled down on? Do you ever feel tro- uh, double or triple burdened? Or you hear people say, you know, it's just like if one thing happens, it all happens. Do you think that's by accident at times? Or is it by design? Of an enemy who's seeking to cause you to forsake the faith. Yet, we know better. Because what we know is that one of the ways that we fight the darts of Satan is erecting monuments and in those moments, clinging to the God that delivered us in those moments. So what happens? Well, don't you remember when they came out of the Red Sea, or excuse me, when they came out of Egypt, they got to the Red Sea, and the enemy changed his mind. Pharaoh changes his mind, and he begins to go after the people. And then they come to the Red Sea, and here before them is this huge natural uh, obstacle that millions of people cannot go around and remain safe from the enemy. And then behind them is the enemy seeking to kill them. And so God tells Moses, to go up, to lift up his staff, and then something quite amazing occurs. The Red Sea splits, there's dry land, the millions of people walk across on it, and then whenever the chariots and all of Pharaoh's men start to chase them, the waters fall down and conquers the enemy. Now, it's the next generation. They've not seen that. They didn't experience that. Remember, all but Caleb and Joshua died. And those under a certain young age. And so now God is wanting to demonstrate to this generation, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. So the Jordan River is dammed up and dries up. And those same That same nation of people walk across there on dry ground. And that was God's way. So here's what Joshua says to him. He said, I want you to take 12 stones as a memorial. And he tells us the second reason why he sets up a memorial. It's for our children's sake. I hope that you talk about the Lord and the Lord's intervention in your life often with your children and grandchildren. Because God intended it that way. Like teach them the Bible stories, yes. Disciple them, yes. But there is this emphasis in the Old Testament that, listen, we're going to create these feasts and festivals. We're going to set up these monuments so that our children will be provoked to ask questions. So dad, why do we kill a lamb and put the blood on the, on the doorpost? Why do we do that? Dad, why in that one city are there 12 huge stones set over there? Why is that the case, Dad? Well, son, let me tell you. And yet you have things in your life which your children cannot as easily personalize these stories, but they know the characters in your life. They know the the, the life that you've lived. They know the hardships you've been through. And so it is imperative for the people of God in order to uh, perpetuate this cause in this way to personalize and make memorials in our own lives that we might pass down to our children. Look at the situation I was in. And yes, it requires you to get personal. And yes, it requires you to share your sins and blemishes and falls, but listen, it is an imperative way to personalize the person of God intervening in your life. I'm afraid today that the younger generation this is the way they look at God. He's this man up in the sky, and the Bible is this story He's full of things far away and a long time ago, and there's no, there's nothing relevant here. You know, I feel entirely the opposite like I cannot read a story in the Bible, a man in the Bible, a woman in the Bible, displays a virtue in the Bible without my life and the people in my life just screaming and coming to life and saying yes I know that person remember one of the first times that happened, I've shared with you before when Barnabas, the son of consolation when I learned that the word consolation meant encouragement, immediately I knew who Barnabas was Because there was a man in my life. Everywhere he went, to anybody he knew, he was this river of life of encouragement to everyone. And suddenly, every time now to this day, 20 years later that I read Barnabas, his name, his touch, his words, his tone, his tears, just emanate from the text because I know Barnabas. And I've known a few Barnabases in my life. It comes alive to me. I see this incredible connection from written truth to living truth. And part of it is because I've sat and I've listened. I want to to exhort you this morning. When God has erected a monument in your life, it is not there just for you privately to draw strength from, but by goodness, share it. Share it with people. How many times have I sat in people's homes and they were ashamed or afraid to testify of God's goodness or deliverance and so as their pastor, they tell me these stories and I'm sitting there and I'm saying, that's incredible. That's a story that, God's, that needs to be heard by the masses and masses of people and at times I'll hear a story and I'll think, I know a person right now sitting in our congregation that needs that. We gotta share it. Why? Because it's not about you. It's not about me. And I hope those stories are never personalized to embellish who we are or the people in our lives, but rather it's to say there was a distinct moment where God of His own sovereign power intervened, and I can't understand why, but He rescued me. Like, listen, I feel it personally this morning. I was a boy living in section eight housing in the ghetto with no hope and God rescued me and I don't know why and there were hundreds of other kids that didn't get out. Why me? Why? Why you? Why did God deliver you? Why did God bless you? And so what, lesson, what is there left to do but to just share it and praise him and praise him for his goodness and say, listen, I would have been in the gutter. I would have been dead, but God, he did this. I was bound in bitterness and anger and hatred. Maybe you didn't grow up like that. Maybe you just had things within that you were bound by. And God imputed you this ability to forgive. And you say, for 50, 60, 70 years, I was angry and I hated everyone. And then God helped me. I went to every counselor. I went to every therapist. I went to every pastor. None of it worked. Then God helped me. And so you make this monument. And it's this visual thing. It's something people can see. And it becomes this object that is more than what it is. It's not a stone. It may be a stone to you, but it's not to me. I'll guard it with my life. Because it represents something greater than just a stone. See, it's meant to give us faith when we lack it. It's meant to teach our children something. You know... In Deuteronomy multiple times, and I'm going to read in Deuteronomy 11 if you want to turn there. In Deuteronomy multiple times, it tells us we need to inscribe these things. We need to talk of them often, often. I hope you do talk about those things often. Like, why talk about the things of the world often? They pass away, they're transient. The excitement and gossip of today is literally going to be nothing tomorrow. And nobody's going to care and all the wealth of knowledge that you have gained by your own personal interests, though it might in this life have some value, its eternal value is likely very little. And yet these times when God intervenes and touches, listen, what man does is always temporary. What God does is always eternal. Always. God does nothing temporarily. Everything God does is for some eternal purpose. And so why should we talk about those things often? Because we're going to be talking about them often in the afterlife. Listen, I think there's this idea in heaven that all we're going to do is sit down and Jesus is going to be in the middle. and We're all just going to be going like this for the next trillion years. Maybe we will. But I like to think that God will also be worshipped by me sitting down with those brothers and sisters whom I did not know, who had a different skin color, who had a different ethnicity, that spoke a different language, that lived millennia ago, and me trying to tell them, listen, this is my story, and then he, he did this. This is the struggle I was having, and then he intervened. And what a beautiful picture of billions of people sitting around telling personalized stories of the monuments of God's intervention in their life. Here, Deuteronomy 11. I don't even know where to begin to read. I wish I could read the whole chapter. I'm not. Going to Moses is talking here and he's trying to give the people a justification for obedience. They're compelling towards obedience. And at the end of the chapter, he gets in basically giving them this, I don't want to say ultimatum, but just this reality. It's not an ultimatum. It's a reality that not only do they live by, but we all live by. And that is this. If you honor God, you obey his precepts, he will bless you. Not the way the world says he'll bless you, but he will bless you. And if you forsake him, he'll curse you. Not in the world, the way the world says. I'm not preaching a health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. I'm talking spiritual things. And so he's driving at that. And the way that he sets up a compelling to obey is by reminding them of when God intervened in their lives. (laughs) Now, in this case, he's actually talking to the Moses generation. And if anybody hears the irony of it, and this is often the case, very often the people who have the greatest reason to praise God doubt him the most. And the people who have, from our perception, the least reason to praise God, praise Him the most. Explain that within the, within the idea of human nature. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Like how is it that Kent Welch comes and puts a TV up here and shows us Christians living in a dump making bricks 10 hours a day from the time they're 10 years old. And yet they're gathering together. And they're living in an all-Muslim nation And they're putting speakers on the top of their churches that when they preach, the gospel might go out into the streets preaching to all the Muslim community, them knowing there's the possibility that it's going to be by law allowed to rush in and arrest them and put them to death. And yet they're bold for the faith. And then very often, what do I do? Hesitant, timid, afraid of the social stigma that I might gain from saying something to somebody who needs the gospel. See, it's very often the, the evidence suggests that very often it is the case. The people who have the greatest reason to praise don't, and the people who don't do. And so he's speaking to the generation who personifies this idea. And he reminds them first in verse two, he reminds them this I'm not saying this to your children pet peeve I want to share that I think is important. Very often we put a lot of pressure on lost people or less than mature Christians to do things and obey in ways that I don't think we should expect from them. Like they don't know better. Like if you're a 75, 80 year old man today and you have walked with God your whole life and you have experienced dozens of monuments throughout your life and you've heard dozens and dozens of more monuments of others that have strengthened your faith, your faith and the catalyst towards obedience ought to be rock solid. Like God says, do, we ought to drop it and go. Why? Because we know him and we know what he does. He does. When a lost person who has never felt the touch of the Lord feels all the pressure in the world that everything we as a church is doing hinges on them, there's something wrong. They need to witness obedience, perhaps to learn obedience. So here, he he clarifies in verse 2, I'm not talking to your children. So I could say that this morning. I'm not talking to children this morning. I'm not talking to even a young Christian who has been saved and yet has not had the experience of witnessing God to the extent that we have. And might I say to those who are older and have witnessed more, the message should fall heavier on your ears. The weight should be more crushing because God has given you the capacity to endure that weight. Verse two, he says this. And know you this day, for I speak not with your children which have not known and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out arm. Now notice, he lists four things there. Here's what your children have not seen. God's greatness, his mighty hand, his stretched out arm, and his chastisement. They've not seen any of that. Aren't each four of those like I could preach a sermon on each of those? Aren't each of them so unique? Like God's chastening hand is a very unique experience. When you know God chastened you. And then you've felt Satan try to preach to you you're unforgivable in the midst of that. And the battlefield of chastisement. Cuz it is a battlefield. Each of these have a significance. So he elaborates on each one in the next few verses. Listen to what he says in verse 3. And his miracles and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt and unto all his land. And what he did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses, unto their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them unto this day. And what he did unto you in the wilderness until you came into this place. And what he did unto Dathan, and Abram, and the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their households and their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Real quick, he says, You were in bondage and you, wit- you witnessed the 10 plagues. Like, if that, if that doesn't in- encourage your faith to witness the 10 plagues, and I've always found the most fascinating about the 10 plagues, they all happened to the Egyptians and none to the Israelites. The Israelite, like, when it became darkness, a darkness so deep that you could feel the darkness, but there where the Israelites lived, It wasn't dark. And you saw the light. So then let me ask this question. Could you see the darkness? So let's say you could see the darkness. So you know you're full of light. And you're looking over and it's darkness. And what's the veil separating it? But the darkness in Egypt was so deep, they didn't even get a little vestige of light. It was so deep of darkness. Go to the cave, turn the lights off. That's how dark it was in Egypt. And yet you saw that. Or the cry that came out from Egypt. Could they hear the cry from where they were at? I'd bet you they could. Why? Because every single household in Egypt, a cry that had never been heard in Egypt, cried because of the loss of every firstborn child and animal. And yet, Goshen finally came to me. There in Goshen. Not one Israelite cried. All was good at night. See, God delivered them. Then they get to the Red Sea and God rescued them. And then they get out to the wilderness with millions of people and they're afraid about food. So God gives them to them. Then they're afraid about water. So God gives it to them. And then they're picky about their food. So God gives them more food. Over and over and over and over. They experience God's goodness. So then, where does Moses lead us to? He comes up with this resounding statement in verse 7. Your eyes have seen it. And I love the New Testament emphasis on experience. Like I felt it. I saw it. I believe that the greatest evidence a person can have is experimental in all aspects of life. When you sense, you hear, you feel in every, all the senses are involved. And not only the five natural senses, those spiritual senses that defy words. When our, as John says in 1 John, he handled the word of life. Like the incarnation, he touched God. So imagine how real God was to him. He touched him, he held him, he witnessed him sleep. It was so real. God was so real. So, what do you do? He says, Therefore shall you keep his commandment. Let me ask you this question. You ever worry about your children? You ever worry that, I go back how many generations? I don't know, but let's say a generation ago that's already all passed and gone that likely the older ones would say, yeah, we were less devoted than they were. We were less faithful than they were. We were less less sacrificial than they were. We were less prayerful than they were. We were less studied than they were. Then we could step to the next group and say, you know what, it's probably likely a safe assumption that that generation is less faithful, less devoted than the previous. Now look at the coming generation, and I'm terrified. Because the things that were commonplace three generations ago are completely unknown in the younger generation. I'll give you an example. What's the longest prayer meeting you've ever been in? What's the longest time in one sitting? And this is anecdotal evidence, so don't take this as some to mean more than what it should. What's the longest time? So when we gather for prayer meetings, bow, we pray. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. You ever prayed for four hours before? Five hours, six hours? You know, there was a... I remember one time reading this. It was very convicting to me. I read this book about this man who was known for his prayer life and his words were, it's highly unlikely that you've ever been called to be a minister of the gospel if you don't spend two hours a day in prayer. Can't say amen, say out, right? Out. Because my question sitting there at that moment reading that was, have I ever spent two hours in prayer straight? Why does that matter? Because there in prayer, suddenly that God that is far away, that God that is confined to this, you begin to have this communion with him where it's not just, I hope he's real. God, if you're up there and you can hear me, I'm really in need right now. I hope this echo bounces around the halls of heaven and makes it into your ear. No, no, no. Like through the exercise of prayer, when God speaks and reveals himself, suddenly it's like you close your eyes and he's right there. He's right there. So I read of these men and women in the past who labored in prayer, and I say, There is something holy and sacred about that. And what it was is not even just the action, it's that God was there. And here's the experience that many of you have had. When you get in a place like that, guess what you can't wait to do? Go back. So this past week, we went back to Indiana. And here's what I like to do. I like to go to places that mean something to me. Like, I'm not talking about my mom's house or my in-law's house, or nothing like that. I'm saying places, those monuments. So once in a while, i climb up on my mom's roof when everybody's in bed. A grown man climbing up on my mom's roof. Why? Because there was a time God spoke to me there. And it changed my life. I told you a few weeks ago about a little park in Greenwood. Nothing's there. Nobody's there. God met me there. i like to go back there alone and say, God, I remember when we were here? Remember when you spoke to me? Remember when you changed me here? I want to exhort you this morning. First, to praise God that we could have these moments while we live. What a blessing. I cannot imagine where I would be if it were not for the monuments along the way. But I can assure you of one thing, it would not be right here. I'd have given up a long time ago. Secondly, is to recognize perhaps part of what our children need are monuments. I find it interesting here where they, their monuments were at. After or before battles. What do you make of that? Like we don't just pick a random Tuesday and say, oh, we're going to make a monument today. That was a happy day. Let's make a monument here. We don't do that. No, we seal off sacred places because usually what conjoins monuments are deep sacrifices. So we say those things there and put those things there and we say, you know what? I lost a lot right there. But what I gained there was a lot more than what I lost there. How can we affect our young people having monuments? Perhaps it's to fight battles spiritual battles. Have you ever, I'm going to close, have you ever been um, a bystander in the presence of somebody who's erecting a monument? Like, something was going on between them and God and you just happened to be there. Say, when somebody gets saved, I'll never forget watching Micah McMurtry During our revival, the kids' portion, like I was right there, I saw the change in his face. I saw it. That's his monument. And maybe one day I will forget it. He won't. And it reminds me, in moments of discouragement, God still saves Maybe what our children need is to see our monuments, to hear our monuments. that They might say, you know what? One day, and a young person, listen, one day you've got to take your faith for yourself. You can't rely on my prayers. You can't rely on these good people's prayers. You and God have to meet. You have to come to a crossroads. You have to fight a battle in your life. And whenever things are breaking and a loss seems inevitable, you, f- you, don't, you don't run to protection from your parents who always protect you. You say, Lord, it's you or nothing. I need you. And that first monument's always the sweetest one to me, isn't it? After you get saved. And then you just kind of float along in your Christian life for a while and the coattails of everybody else. And then. You. This this something happens. And you see, you know what? This is my faith. This is my relationship with God. I've got to know Him. I've got to obey Him. The things that happen here are as much my responsibility as anybody's. And you take up the mantle. Say, okay, Lord, my name is, and I don't know you very well. But today, I'd like to start. It's our message this morning Monumental moments. I pray today. I texted some people this week here at our church because as I was studying this and I didn't feel inclined to share it this morning, there were some things that people had shared with me or publicly that I thought, man, that's a monument. Something worth hearing. Something worth remembering. Something, whether I ever speak about it or not, that I want to know For my own faith. And I pray as God leads you from time to time that you would share it. If that's just your salvation experience. By goodness, don't get up and say, I know you all know this. I want to hear it again. Listen, for thousands of years, Jews have been meeting for the Passover. And God wanted to do it for 20,000 years. Unto a thousand generations, God wanted the Passover to be celebrated, right? Right? There's a lot in that statement that needs to be corrected, but somebody have a word on your heart this morning, something you feel the need to share today.